Thanks for joining us as we explore the good news of Jesus and his kingdom in the Gospel of Mark. For discussion guides and details about how to join us on Sundays, please visit fairoaks.org. Well, good morning, Fair Oaks. Uh, if you got a Bible, grab it. We'll be in Mark chapter 8. Uh, if you're a guest with us, you picked a great week to join us because we have come to um, what might just be the eight most important verses, not only in the Gospel of Mark, uh, but I really believe this possibly in your entire life. Um, I'll set it up for you this way. Uh, several years ago, I was doing youth ministry in a church that had, uh, I would say, a culture of wakeboarding. Um, I don't know how it happened or if it was people that just liked wakeboarding, found Jesus, got together, if they liked Jesus, and then found wakeboarding. But by the time I got there, several families in the church had boats, and this is what you would do for fun. So on a Sunday morning when you show up, hey, how was your weekend? Oh, we went wakeboarding. When the staff would uh, go out to bond with one another, we would go wakeboarding. And uh, the youth group, for our kind of big end-of-summer event, uh, we would get dozens of families in the church to bring their boats out to a big lake camping weekend, and we would wakeboard all day and worship Jesus all night because nothing sets you up to worship better than cruising on the lake. It, it, it was awesome. I, I'm like, you know, now that I say it, I'm like, we need to develop that culture here of the Holy Spirit stirring in any of you. Uh, <laughs> uh, but except it wasn't awesome for me at first, and here's why. I had a really hard time picking up wakeboarding. Um, so I would uh, get down in the water, and I, I, I love speed. So I'd see people flying out there, and I'm just giddy. I think that looks awesome. So I'd get down in the water, and I'd be laying there, and I'd wait for the boat to start. And I'm like, okay, this is the time. I'm ready. I'm ready to fly. I believe I can fly. Let's go. And the second the boat would pick up, I mean, it would just be instantaneous, pow, fall flat on my face. Um, and this went on for uh, several years, which is, again, put yourself in my church, quite embarrassing in that context. So I'd be in the boat, and I'm an optimist, so I'm like, hey, maybe today's the day. Maybe today's the day, and I'd get out in the water. And so this went on for years until um, a buddy asked me this question. He said, what's going through your head uh, when the boat starts? And I'm like, I am trying to get up. Are you kidding me, right? Like, what's going, through, what's going through your head when the boat starts? I'm trying to get up. I want to fly. I want to have fun. I see how awesome it is. And what he says is, don't do that. What? Don't, don't try to get up. That's why you're falling flat on your face. You need to lean back and stay in the water and let the boat pull you up. And, and I'm thinking, like, man, that, okay, Yoda, uh, that, that is the dumbest advice I've ever heard. But, you know, I was desperate. I was at the end of myself. And so I said, you know what? I've tried everything. We'll try this. And so I just laid back, didn't do anything, and I just waited for the boat to pull me up. And sure enough, the boat gets going and just, boom, there I go. Uh, and I've been going ever since. Yeah, thank you. It was, it was quite a moment. And now I love wakeboarding. And now I look back on that fondly. I miss that church dearly uh, for several reasons, including the wakeboarding, but many more important ones than that. Um, but the point is, uh, the text that we're in today is going to say that life is a lot like that. Um, that for all of our desire uh, to experience freedom and really to have fullness of life, and I don't know how you come in here, but you don't have to be a Christian or consider yourself religious to say, hey, I want to live fully alive. I want to experience life. That's kind of a universal human desire. And yet for all of our desires to get up on the lake and fly and experience the fullness of life, how often do we end up falling flat on our faces? How many of you did I just describe your last week right there? I mean, you were, you were like, hey, I believe I can fly. It's summertime. Maybe this week's going to be different. And pa-pow! What Jesus is going to do in our text today is he's going to help us understand why it is uh, that we fall flat on our faces. 
Um, And he is going to lead us in this counterintuitive way of living um, that that might seem a little um, backwards to us, but actually leads to the flourishing and the fullness of life that we long for. So how many of you could use more life this morning? All right, well then let's do it. Mark chapter 8, we'll pick it up where we left off last week in verse 31. It says this, And he... That's Jesus. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter, he he took him aside and he began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man." Um, now, in order to understand what's going on, we've got to kind of put ourselves in the shoes of Peter. Um, I don't, I'm convinced that you either know someone like Peter or you yourself are like Peter. Um, if you're new with us, Peter's kind of a ready, fire, aim kind of guy. Uh, he just blurts out whatever is on his mind. How many of you are Peter's? Okay, there's a couple of us and we stress the rest of you out. Awesome. Do you notice there's two Peter's in my home? Anyway, um, so Peter, he ready, fire, aim. He just blurts out. And sometimes that leads to great revelation. Like last week, he's the first human in the story of Mark to recognize that Jesus is the Christ. Um, and yet here, Jesus calls him Satan. So uh, that blurting things out, it, it's going to lead to high highs and low lows. Uh, that's, that's our boy Peter. Uh, the point is, whether or not you share in his personality, Peter just blurted out an instinct that we all have as humans. And Jesus called it Satanic. So, so let's look at it to understand, because Jesus loves this guy. He's not going to give up on Peter. Peter's going to be the leader of the early church. So Peter's going to be okay. Um, but in this moment, we're seeing Peter fall on his face in the same way that you and I do. And Jesus is going to help Peter. He's going to help you. He's going to help me. Um, if you were here with us last week, we said uh, that we have now come to a turning point in the Gospel of Mark, where the first half of the book really asked uh, you and I and the reader throughout every age to answer this simple but profound question. Who is Jesus? And the whole first eight chapters are, who is Jesus? And Mark is presenting Jesus to us. Here's what Jesus has done. Here's who he is. And um, the demons get it. Mark told us in the intro who Jesus is. But you're reading the story and the human characters, they're in process. They don't know the end of the story like Mark does. They're, um, they're not very old like these spiritual beings. And so they're kind of slow. They're kind of figuring it out in real time as you and I would have if we were there. And um, finally, at the end of Mark chapter 8, after kind of some up and down for the disciples, um, Jesus says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? He's kind of bringing them to a point of decision. And Peter says, you are the Christ. Now, we said last week, that's not Jesus' last name. That's a a title that means um, anointed one. Um, Some of your translations might say the Messiah, which is the Hebrew form of that same title. Um, I think that's actually maybe a good translation, even though Greek says Christ. um, They're trying to help us not confuse Christ as a name, but to see it as a title and really connect us back to the first two-thirds of our Bible, which we call the Old Testament. And the central message of the Old Testament is essentially this. Um, Though the world is broken, God has promised to one day... um, fix what is broken in the cosmos, and restore 
everything through sending his Messiah to bring his kingdom back to earth, to reunite heaven and earth, to take hell out of this place, separate it out forever, and to restore his creation to exactly what he made it to be. The Messiah is the restorer. He is the rescuer. He's the one that's going to fix everything that you experienced this week that was painful. And what Peter says is, Jesus, you're the one. You're the one. And it's that confession, it's that um, realization on which the whole book hinges. Now in verse 31, Mark says Jesus begins to show him what it means that he's the Messiah. He begins to show his disciples what does it mean. Because here's the thing. We all have our own ideas about how God should fix the world. And many times we have either um, taken one part of the promises of God and ignored all the others, or we've simply brought our own preferences and imported them into the Bible. And um, we are no exception. This certainly happened in God's day, um, in Jesus' day. Um, In Jesus' day, the people of God expected that when the Messiah would come, Uh, he would really be this great military leader that would kind of go in and clear out Rome and knock Caesar off the throne and kick the pagans out of the Holy Land and restore the glory days in Israel. Which, if you actually go back and read your Old Testament, that's actually a misreading of the book. They take certain things and they ignore the rest. Um, God's always been about more than one people group in one particular place on the planet. Um, He's always about been redemption and restoration, not only doing away with injustice, but actually restoring goodness. And so that expectation, it's understandable. They were being persecuted. It was a difficult time. But they, their vision was too narrow for what God had wanted to do in the world. And so Jesus steps in, and starting in 831, he's going to show them, what is the Messiah really coming to do? You're right, I am the Messiah, and let me show you the fullness of what that means. And again, he doesn't reinvent it. He explains it in terms that the Old Testament anticipated that Jesus Christ fulfills and reveals And as he does this, he begins here. This is the very start of this section in Mark, where it says he begins showing them um, what it means that he is the Messiah. Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, hey, Peter, you're right. And so here's what that means. Some awful things are going to happen to me. Right away, this is not going according to Peter's script. Um, He says, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, you're right. Some awful things are going to happen to me. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to die. But don't worry. Three days later, I am going to rise again. Now, this is the first of three such predictions Jesus is going to make on his way to Jerusalem. What he's trying to do is he has to repeat himself because the disciples, they're not so unlike you and me. They can be thick-headed at times. They can um, misunderstand Jesus. And so he's going to tell them again and again and again over the next several chapters, hey, I am the Messiah, but this thing isn't going to go the way you think it's going to go. I'm not going to Rome to kill Caesar. I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to let the powers of the evil empire overcome me. And through my death, I'm going to overcome them. And so he tells them this three times along the way. This is the first. He's trying to get them to understand, in order to save you, I have to die for you. Um, uh, Theologians have talked about it this way, um, that before Jesus would pick up the crown of his kingdom, he must first pick up his cross. And Peter, he doesn't like this. He doesn't want um, the cross. He wants the crown without the cross. He wants the glory without the suffering and the death to bring that redemption. And so Peter hears Jesus say this, and he pulls Jesus aside, and he straight up rebukes him. Now, for all of you that didn't raise your hand like you're a Peter, you're like, oh my goodness, how did he rebuke God? For the rest of us, we're like, how often do you argue with God? 
Peter pulls him aside. He's like, Jesus, you've got to stop talking like this. You know, you're, you're the Messiah. You're not going to die. Caesar, he's going to die. I mean, those Jewish leaders, they might die. They called you Beelzebub. Like, lots of people are going to die. You're last on the list. And so Peter takes Jesus aside, and he rebukes him. And I got to tell you, I love that this is in the Bible, because you and I do this too. Again, regardless of your personality, if you're like a Peter or not, I would submit to you that you and I do this. We might just not be so blunt about it. We might not be so bold about it. Um, but this happens every time you are um, reading the Bible and you see something and you go, ooh, I don't know if I like that. What's that mean in Greek? Sometimes you can identify a rebellious Christian by, like, is there something in the original language that can change what that means? Like, no, our Bible translations are fairly good. There's no tricks to get out of this one. Jesus, Jesus is saying he's going to die. And so sometimes we can read the Bible and we go, ooh, that kind of offends my sensibilities. I don't like that about you. And so, um, you know what, I'm just going to uh, cover over that aspect. I'm a little bit embarrassed about that about you, God. So I'll only talk about this stuff I like over here when I tell my friends about you. What you are doing in that instant is you're arguing with God. And you might not be so blunt with Peter to go aside and rebuke him. But it's certainly the same attitude that says, I don't like this about you. I'm going to emphasize this. I'm going to hide that because we stand in judgment over God and say, this is good. This is bad. We think we know better than God. And, and that's, that's what's going on in our boy Peter here. And, and again, you might not be so blunt when you say it that way. You might be like, well, I don't read my Bible, so ha, I don't go there. Okay, um, well, let me say this. We do this every time we sin. Every time God says, this is what I'm asking you to do to lead you into life, and um, we do something different or we neglect to do that good thing, what we're saying is, God, I'm smarter than you. I know that you've asked me to love my neighbor, but my neighbor is a dum-dum, and so I'm going to embarrass them in front of everybody and correct them online in such a way that they'll never speak up again. I know you said to, to love them, but really, you don't understand. If you were here, you would tear them a new one as well. This is what happens every time we sin, is we think we're smarter than God. And again, we would never say it so bluntly, but I put it that blunt so we can wrestle with what's going on here. Because we can look at Peter and go, what a dum-dum. He, he pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes him. Who is he to rebuke the one that he just called the Messiah? But you and I do the same. And until you can see that you and I have that same instinct, you'll never experience life. See, I, I, the Bible says it this way, that we're born with this internal pull. And I call it a pull because what the scriptures tell us is that we are um, bent towards not trusting what God says is true. We're bent. Our default posture is to trust ourselves over God. And so where we and God tend to align, we'll emphasize that part of God's word. And where we and God disagree, we tend to uh, de-emphasize and try to explain that away. Um, over there. Uh, listen to how um, the wisest human to ever live besides Jesus will say it. This is in the book of Proverbs chapter 14. Uh, this is my life verse. If you just want to get to know um, me a little bit, this is one that the Holy Spirit highlights to me often. It says, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. What what Solomon is saying there is there are going to be things that seem like a good idea to you. It seems right to you, but if you follow it through, you're going to kill everybody. Now, how often has that been your experience? 
I mean, let, let's be honest. I know it's church and that's hard for us to do here, but let's be honest. How often have you thought, um, I, know, I know what God says about this, but I have a better idea, or um, maybe you're not a spiritual person. You don't often think about God. Let me just ask you this. How often have you had an idea about something that might lead you to life and flourishing and happiness, and you pursued it, and you fell flat on your face? Yeah, this is an instinct. This is a pull that we all have, that we are um, bent towards thinking that we know what leads to life, more so than our creator, more so than anyone else. And, and, and so just like Peter, we have the same pull. And though you might express it in several different ways, um, this is what the Bible calls our flesh, our sin nature. And this is what's going on with our boy Peter here. And this is why Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Anyone feel like that's a little harsh? Like Peter Two verses ago, just said, Jesus, you're the Christ. He's clearly team Jesus. And then two verses later, Jesus calls him Satan. But what he's saying is, um, I think this is a loving warning. He says, you are following in the path of that original rebel, Satan, who didn't want God to be God. He wanted to be God. And he says, you are in a dangerous place. And the place of safety for you is to get behind me and to follow my leadership. You're getting out. You're trying to get out in front of me. You're trying to be God. You're trying to be king. Get back in the place of safety because I love you and I want you in a place of safety. I want you in a place of life. And what I hope that you can see in all of this is that to be in a relationship with Jesus, um, it means to be in a relationship with a God who will love you enough to correct you. To be in relationship with a God who will love you enough to say, I know that seems right to you, but you are in a place of danger, and I love you enough to call you to a place of safety behind my good and kind leadership and rule. I created life. I want to lead you into life. And the place of safety for you is to get behind me. And, and that's really the thrust of what's going on in this text. But I think so often what can happen is um, this is one of those verses that we don't necessarily like about Jesus. We go like, ooh, you know, like, get behind me, Satan. That sounds a little harsh. That sounds a little judgy. And so we treat Jesus basically like our sidekick, that where Jesus agrees with us, he's, you know, we really like Jesus, and we're, but we don't let Jesus challenge us. You know, we, 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 God is my co-pilot. Like, I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase. You know what that implies? That implies you're the one driving. It's like, okay, he's over there. He gets to give some input. But at the end of the day, it all runs through my leadership and my design. And so sometimes we treat Jesus like our sidekick, but we don't allow him to challenge us. And I just want to be straight with you. If that is what you're doing, then no wonder you're bored with God. Because at that point, you're not in a relationship with the living Jesus. Jesus doesn't play sidekick. Jesus will love you enough to challenge you. And so if your vision of Jesus is a sidekick that votes like you, thinks like you do, and just affirms all of your presuppositions, you're not worshiping and walking with the living Jesus. You are worshiping a fake God of your imagination. And no wonder you're bored. Because you are literally worshiping your own imagination. You're not worshiping the living God of the Bible who wants to lead you into something that your imagination could never come up with. Jesus, we see in this encounter with Peter, he loves him enough to correct him. And to be in a relationship with a God like this opens up a whole new way of living beyond our own internal pull that leads us to fall flat in our face. Look at, um, look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross 
and follow me. So, so far, Jesus has been just talking to his 12 disciples. Um, but then Jesus, he sees this as a teachable moment. And so he calls the crowd to him. And he says, everybody, get over here. This isn't just special knowledge for these guys. This is for everybody. If anybody wants to be in relationship with me. Some of you need to hear that this morning. You might go, I'm not the kind of person Jesus would love. I don't have a church background. I kind of had a gnarly weekend. You got to hear these words here. If anybody wants a relationship with Jesus, here's what it looks like. This is available to you. He says, if anyone would have a relationship with me, here's what it looks like. He says, number one, deny yourself. Deny yourself. Now, I want you to notice, he doesn't say deny a few bad habits. Sometimes we read it that way. Like, to become a Christian, I have to deny these few bad habits. But no, Jesus says to deny yourself. That internal pull that exists deep in your soul that thinks you know better than God that internal pull, Jesus says, you're going to have to die to that. That verb, deny yourself, um, it occurs uh, several times. I'm lost on my notes here. I think it's like 11 times in the New Testament. But several times of those um, are actually going to occur later in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus is betrayed and arrested just like he predicts here. And Peter... When Jesus is on trial for his life, he denies that he knows Jesus. He refuses to associate with him. He's like, no, I don't know that guy because Peter fears for his life. And it's that same verb that Jesus used here. So this idea of refusing to associate, distancing yourself from. Some of you have teenagers and they're getting to that point where they just don't want to be seen with you because like, you're embarrassing because you're a parent. Don't worry, it's not you, it's them. They'll grow out of it. I've been there. Um, that idea of refusing to associate, not wanting to be tied to or seen with just utter distance, that's what Jesus says here, to deny yourself. Don't deny a few bad habits. Deny your internal pull. Deny yourself. Deny your desires, your ambition, your way of doing things, because your way of doing things leads to death. Because we are all marred by sin. Our desires are twisted and distorted. It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't want to give us the true desires of our heart. It's that Jesus is recognizing our, our desires have been distorted by sin. And so he's like, you've got to deny those things so that I can renew your desires, give you a new heart that you can actually follow my leading to live in a new life. So Jesus says, refuse to associate with that internal pull that you have. And, and this is so counter uh, the advice of our culture that says, you know what's best for you. Follow your heart. Anyone hear that? Follow your heart. You do you. This is the air that we breathe. And this is why I say these might be the eight most important verses in your entire life today. Because these verses are an all-out assault on the spirit of our age that says you are basically a god. You know what is good for you. And as long as you don't go judging other people, you do whatever you want and you'll be free. And Jesus says, no, nah, if you do that, you'll, you'll die. Because your internal pull, it leads to death. The scriptures have said this for thousands of years. Your own life says this. If you ever do any counseling, um, as I've had the honor to walk with people through their life, I mean, this is the confession that I've just seen so many people come to, myself included, that I thought I would find life over here. And oh my goodness, it led to death, that I have ruined my life. I can't believe that I did these things. Jesus loves us enough to say, no, you, you can't follow your heart. Your heart will lead to death. Your internal pull will lead to death. And the place of safety for you is to get behind me because I want to lead you into life. I want to lead you into wholeness. And, and the point with this, um, 
This, this is where he gets to the imagery of a cross. So he says, deny yourself. How do you do that? Well, pick up your cross and follow me. Now, I want you to hear this word cross like uh, the crowd would have heard it that day. Because you and I, it's, it's so hard to put ourselves in their shoes. We live after the death and resurrection of Jesus, so we see the cross as this great icon of redemption. Uh, they would not have known that yet. They would have seen the cross as a bloody, terrifying killing device that the Romans really perfected as a humiliating and gruesome way to tear someone apart so that all the onlookers would go, oh, I would never defy Rome because look what Rome will do to you. So he says, take that. I don't think we have a modern day equivalent. The best I can think of is like, take a guillotine. And Jesus says, take your guillotine, lay your head on it, and die to your old self, to your internal pull, to those instincts that think that you know what will lead you to life because they're killing you. And so I'm calling you to die to that thing that's bringing you death because I want to bring you into life. So pick up your cross and follow me. Get back in the place of safety. And that's a pretty massive ask. Um, That's a pretty massive ask. And so the question is, well, Jesus, why... Would I die to myself? It's one thing to say, this ain't working. But it's another thing to say, why should I follow you, Jesus? And so anticipating that, he gives us some reasons. Look at verse 35. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sakes and the gospels will save it. I want to stop right there because this first reason, it is so important. Number one, why should we die to our internal pull, to our own way of leading life in order to follow Jesus? Number one, because he's leading us into life. It hasn't even been in my notes, and I think I've said it several dozen times to now. I was supposed to save it right now so you could go, pa, whoa. Jesus is leading us into life. And I say it so many times because um, this is my own testimony. I grew up in the church, and I didn't reject Jesus because I found the Bible unbelievable. I, I, I walked away from the church because I thought, man, like I want to be fully free and fully alive. And Jesus just wants to, he's so constricted with his morality. He wants so much from me. He wants me to die to myself. I heard this verse preached growing up. And so I said, you know what, no, I'm going to live to myself. And I walked away. And this is where some of you are at right now. That um, you're not rejecting Jesus because you can't believe that he's God, the creator, the king. You just look at it and you go, I'm not sure he's very interesting or that he could actually lead me to what I want. And, and I don't know where this idea comes No, I do know where this idea comes from. That is the original lie that Satan told our first parents in the garden. That God, he's holding out on you. And if you really want to be free, if you really want to be alive, you've got to get out from his thumb and his rule. And you do you, follow your heart. This is straight up in Genesis chapter 3. You do you, follow your heart. You know better than God. And then you can be fully alive. And so if you think you're being original by rebelling against God, you're not. You're following in the way of Satan. You're following this very old, tired line. If you want to be rebellious, the thing to do would be to rebel against the spirit of the age and go, no, I don't believe that lie. I trust Jesus. This is, and so this is why I feel so much burden on this one. I want to plead with you, if that's where you're at, do not buy this lie that Jesus wants to keep you from life. The scriptures tell us on repeat, Jesus wants to lead us into life. 
He comes so that we might have life and have it abundantly. He's not a killjoy up in heaven going, is that fun down there? Holy Spirit, give me a lightning bolt. Kapa! That, that's not him. Jesus, he, he creates life. He wants just to enjoy life. He wants to lead us into the fullness of life. And so when he says die to yourself, die to that internal pull, it's because that's killing us. And he says, I want to lead you into life. So die to that internal pull. Number one, why? Because Jesus is leading us into life. And, um, and I, I want to prove it to you because, again, this is really my own story. This is, I've walked away and, um, man, I would just testify to you today. You will not find life outside of Jesus that can ever compare. Um, but because I feel that burden, I just want to... Um, I, I was reading through some articles this week just to go, um, man, how would I, what would I say to me when I was walking away to try to find life outside of Jesus? And I just, if, if you would just indulge me for a moment, I just want to prove to you that Jesus wants to lead you into life. Um, you don't have to be a Bible-believing Christian to believe this. I'm going to read from secular sources for just a moment, if you will forgive me. Um, there is an article, um, and here's the name of the title. It's a little provocative. Hang with me. Um, the title of the article is called Fewer Sex Partners Means a Happier Marriage by Olga Kazan. Um, this appeared in The Atlantic a, a couple years ago. Uh, and I, I want to reference this article because I think if there is one area that our culture writ large looks at Jesus and kind of like Peter pulls him aside and goes, look, we could really make more Christians if you would just tone it down on the whole sex and marriage. Just, just stop it. If there's one area that we writ large tend to look at Jesus and stand in judgment over him where our internal pull is exposed, it has got to be in the areas of human sexuality and marriage. Um, and I'm not going to give the full biblical vision for human sexuality and marriage today because, Lord willing, we're going to do Genesis in the fall. It's going to be awesome. Jesus has so much life for us. I want to invite you to that. Um, I simply want to point to this article and let this article make Jesus' point for him here. Uh, li listen to what Olga says. Um, again, this is in the Atlantic. If you want to read it this week, I put it in the online worship guide so you can read it through. But I'll just read you some highlights. She says, contrary to conventional wisdom, when it comes to sex, the less experience is better. Now, if you grew up Baptist, you're like, what conventional wisdom is she talking about there? Um, she's talking about the, the spirit of our age, the internal pull that um, looks at the Bible's vision of sexuality um, being a gift to be enjoyed inside of the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman for one lifetime. Our culture looks at that and goes, how backwoods is that? God is just a killjoy. He's just trying to keep things from us, right? Like you, you even hear this sometimes in the church. I've seen godly parents counsel their children. Well, you know, you have to sleep around a little bit before you get married so that you can like really kind of try things on and know who you're getting married to. That is the spirit of our age. And yet the data doesn't match. So again, I'm not going to quote Bible to you. We'll do that in the fall on Genesis. I'll just quote science to you. This is sociology, one of the so-called soft sciences. This is a massive study that was done. And listen to this. Um, again, th this author, she's confounded. She's by no means a Christian. She's like, you know, contrary to what we all thought, apparently sleeping around a ton isn't a good idea. Listen to this. Women with zero to one previous sex partners before marriage were least likely to divorce, while those with 10 or more were most likely. So the article goes on, and it's like, oh my goodness, like, man, it seems like, um, 
being committed to one person and enjoying sex in the confines of that committed relationship actually leads to a more stable relationship? Like, who could have imagined this? And some of you are like, oh, well, that's just patriarchy right there. Like, those women are just oppressed and they have to stay in their marriages. Well, let's, let's not be patriarchal. Let's let these women speak for themselves, shall we? Listen to what the women said. Women who have had one partner instead of two are about five percentage points happier in their marriages, about on par with the boost that possessing a four-year college degree, attending a religious service, or having an income over $78,000 a year has for a happy marriage. In other words, this article goes on to say, and these women are happy. They're not oppressed, and we can't figure it out. We try to control for all these data points, and we can't make it not happen. In other words, what Je- when Jesus says that sex is a gift to be enjoyed, in the confines of the covenant of marriage, he's on to something. And, and if you hear that and you're like, well, man, that's not my story. Um, I, I don't mean for you to feel condemnation and shame in that because Jesus came to redeem our grimy stories. He came to redeem us because our internal pull does make us do things outside of his design. So it's not that you have no shot at happiness. It's that you have no shot at happiness until you're willing to say, my way is not working and I believe that you can love me in spite of what I have done, oh my goodness, I'm going to let you redeem my past and give me a new future because I believe that you want to lead me into life. Am I saying Christian marriages are perfect? No, absolutely not. What I am saying is that Jesus is our creator. And as our creator, he knows how our life is meant to work. And so when he says, here's how this is supposed to operate, he's not trying to steal something. He's not trying to take, he's not going, what are they doing down there? Is that fun? He, he wants to lead us into life. He wants to lead us into flourishing and intimate, deep relationships that last. Jesus wants to lead us into life. And so some of you... Um, Some of you might say, okay, that's fine for the folks that their life is busted, but my life's going great. I'm not falling on my face. I'm cruising, and I'm so glad you said that because Jesus wants to address you two this morning. Verse 37, excuse me, verse 36. He, He continues on, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. See, Jesus is not saying here that you will not experience temporary success or temporary burst of happiness apart from himself. What he is saying is, yeah, sure, you might experience temporary success. You might have a relationship that feels good for a little while. You might, um, if you cast off what God says um, about loving him and prioritizing him and loving others, you might crush it in business if you're cruel to everyone around you and you see everyone is a nail to be hammered by you on your way to success. You could experience some success apart from the way of Jesus. If you just follow that internal pull that says, I exist to crush others, I exist to take from others, the whole world exists for me, I'm going to do whatever I want. You can succeed in life. But what Jesus says, what does that matter? What does it profit a person to gain the whole world? Every riches, every relationship, every ounce of fame you could ever desire. What does it profit you to gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? 
This is the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon's like, I've had like 800 wives, which is like 799 too many. And I've had um, all of this money. I've had all this power. And at the end of my life, my conclusion is it was all meaningless. We should trust God. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. Jesus is saying that here. He's saying, you have a soul. In, in the temporary trinkets of this world that, you're, that you and I feel this pull to give ourselves to, he's like, that is no replacement for what your soul really longs for. Do not sacrifice your soul for the temporary trinkets of this world because it won't satisfy you. I've quoted Jesus. I've quoted Solomon. Let's quote someone that we're all familiar with. Um, hopefully you're familiar with Jesus. Maybe you've heard of Solomon. Uh, I'm sure you've all heard of Jim Carrey. Um, he's one of, I think, the greatest actors. Uh, if, don't send me that email. Um, if you don't agree, uh, you send me an email. I'll pray for you. But this is what Jim Carrey says on this same point. He says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see it is not the answer. Jim Carrey is saying what Solomon said long, long ago, what Jesus said right in the middle. And that is, what does it matter if you gain the whole world if you lose your soul? You are more than um, one author would say, a brain on a stick. You are more than atoms just clicking together, living for whatever is going to work in the moment. What Jesus says is you have a soul and the temporary trinkets of this world cannot fulfill the deep-seated longings that you look for. And, and then in verse 38, I mean, he dials it up to eternal thoughts. He says in verse 38, he uses judgment language. This is drawn on a bunch of Old Testament language to say there is a day where I'm going to return with all of my angels and I'm going to set the world right. I am going to, um, the, day, the idea the prophets would call it the day of the Lord, where God returns and he judges wickedness and he restores goodness. And it's like the hope of the Old Testament, that God will come, he'll fix everything, he'll do away with everything sad, he'll make everything new. And Jesus says there is coming a day where I will come with my angels to set the world right. And he says, on that day, if you refuse to trust my loving leadership in your life, I will give you exactly what you asked for. If you don't trust me to lovingly lead you into life right now, then when I come back to fix the world, I'll give you everything that you asked for in your life. You will be separated from my loving, life-giving leadership and presence forever because you chose that you didn't want it. And he says, don't let that be your choice. Don't, don't take some temporary trinkets over the eternity that your soul longs for. You can gain the whole world, but what does it matter if you lose your soul, if you miss out on life for eternity? There's a pastor named Dallas Willard who's famous. I think this is a great summary of this passage. He says, the life that Jesus offers is, I want to get this right, the life Jesus offers is eternal in quality and never-ending in quantity. That is what Jesus wants to lead you into. He wants to lead you into life right now. The, like eternal life begins now. It's eternal in quality. He wants to lead you into the fullness of what you long for. He wants you to cruise and ride upon the lake. Glory of God. Cruise and everyone watch you and go, that person's fully alive. And 
He doesn't want you to do that for a second, fall on your face, and never wakeboard again. He wants you to do that for an eternity. It is eternal in quality and never-ending in quantity. This is the life that Jesus holds out to you and to me today. And what he says is, if anyone wants in on this, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter the ways that you think you've disqualified yourself. It doesn't matter what you've done. If anyone wants to get in on this, you simply need to deny that internal pull and follow my loving leadership. Trust me that maybe I know some things that you don't. Get in the place of safety behind me so that I can lead you into life. And so, so my question for you this morning, um, like I know in a room this big, some of you come in here and you're playing the church game. And maybe you're not yet a Christian. Maybe you're kind of where I was going, man, I'm just not sure Jesus really knows what will lead to fullness of life. Others of you, you've been walking with Jesus for a very long time and you think this is for all the junior varsity Christians. You don't graduate from this question. This side of glory, we still drag around that sin nature until our body goes into the ground. So I can say this without question. Every one of us, myself included, we need to ask this question. Am I dying to my internal pull in order to truly live in the place of safety behind Jesus? Or am I ignoring the leadership of Jesus in my life and trying to do my own thing? Um, I'll I'll tell you this, because I've been sitting on this text all week. Um, as I asked myself that question, I was amazed to find out how often I argue with Jesus. Uh, I was amazed to find out how often I was like, Jesus, I don't necessarily like what you're doing here. Why won't you get on board with my plans here? And again, you might not say it that blunt, but I, I promise you if, you, if you leave here and, and meditate on this question this week, am I following my internal pull or am I dying to my internal pull to have true life by following Jesus? If you honestly ask that question, I believe the Holy Spirit will highlight to you how often it is that you do argue with Jesus, just like Peter. And it might look a little different for your personality. The question is, what do we, the question is not, will you disagree with Jesus this week? You will. You have an internal pull. You have a sin nature. It doesn't matter how long you've been walking with Jesus. Until this body goes on the ground, we will wrestle with that sin nature. The question is, how will you respond this week? You say, Jesus, I trust you. It's going to cost me something. But I will pick up my cross to follow you because I believe that you have the path to life. Or will we say, no, Jesus, I, I respect to you. I think I know better here. And again, I know you would never say it that way, but those are the two options Jesus presents. If anyone wants to have a relationship with him, it looks like denying our internal pull and following his loving leadership into life. And so what will you do this week? Um, I know there are some of you right now, you are sitting in the proverbial water. And you are, the boat is about to go. And, and, and you think you know how to get up. You're like, I just need to try to stand up. And you know what God has said about what you're doing. You know that God has said, this isn't going to lead to your flourishing. But you're like, I, I think if I just try really hard to do it my way, I am going to get up. And I, I just want to plead with you to let this text be a loving, loving nudge from a God who loves you. Don't fall on your face. He wants to lead you into life. And I just want to close by saying this is what it means to be human. To be a human means to follow and trust the loving and kind leadership of our God and King Jesus. 
This is what we were created for. The whole following our internal pull, I know it might cost something in your life. I'm not unaware of that. But that's the aberration. That's not how we were made to live. We were made to follow the good leadership of a good king. If you go back Genesis 1 and 2, this is what the world was made to be. We were made to trust his definition of good and evil and out of his definition of flourishing to bring flourishing to the world. This is what Jesus restores through his life, death, and resurrection. And look, I I know some of you, you will have other people that will preach a similar message. Don't trust your instincts, trust mine. But here's what makes Jesus different from any other person that will say that to you. Jesus is the only leader and king who doesn't need something from you. In fact, he wants to give something to you. That is why Jesus said it is necessary that the Messiah would suffer and die. Because here's the thing. Jesus could have taken the crown without the cross just like Peter wanted. But here's the thing. That would not have been good news for you and me. Because you and I and every human who has ever lived, including Peter, have all followed in the way of Satan. We've all followed our internal pull that says, we know more than you, God. And through that, we have brought injustice and evil and brokenness into God's good world. And God's response to that, it's not to cancel us. It's not to say, you're the bad people, you're on the outside, I'm going to look for cleaner people. God's response to that is to send his only son into the world to save us from our sin. See, Jesus, he didn't just talk about picking up your cross. Jesus, in a few chapters, is going to pick up his cross. And he will die in our place for our sins in order to bring us the life that we could never find and never earn on our own. And it's because that he has done this that we have any shot of walking in these things. These these verses, these are not things you have to live up to this. You have to be a better Christian. You have to die to yourself more. No, no, no. Jesus is not up in heaven looking down at you this morning saying, how dare you think you're smarter than me? Jesus is looking down from heaven saying, would you believe what I've done to bring you life? I have removed your sin from you. Whatever you struggle with this week, that doesn't get to define you anymore. That's removed from you. The only thing that gets to define you is my love if you've trusted in me to take away your sin and to give you my righteousness. And so I can tell you with confidence, if you've trusted in Jesus, he looks at you this morning with a smile on his face. He looks at the areas that you're following, your internal pull, not his own, not with anger, not with disgust, but he looks at you and says, I have more life for you than that. Would you follow me into that? I want more flourishing for you than that. And that is the invitation of this text, to die to the things that would bring us death and to follow the loving leadership of our great God and Savior who gave himself so that we might have life. Let's pray. Jesus, you are, you know the path to life, Jesus. I just want to confess that this morning. For as often as I think I know the path to life, um, I just want to confess with my lips that you are God, you are king, you know what will lead to life and flourishing and goodness. And, And Jesus, you not only know what will lead to life, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And so I pray for myself, friends and for myself this morning um, that you would help us to believe that, that you would send your Holy Spirit to um, open our eyes to your beauty and how much you love us no matter what we struggle with, that we would see that you're the kind of God and King that is unlike any other um, so-called God and King that would want to lead us. 
that you're not trying to take something from us, that you want to give something to us. Would you open our eyes to that truth this morning that we might respond in the only way that makes sense, by giving you praise, by trusting you, by leaving behind the things that would take life from us, even where it is costly, to follow you in the path of true life. So I pray that you would do that this morning, that you would um, open up eyes maybe for the first time and make new Christians this morning. And for those of us who've been walking with you and think, I'm not sure where I need to hear this, I pray you would send your Holy Spirit to help us apply these things, that we might enjoy more of the fullness of what you came to bring us. In your beautiful name I ask. Amen.